Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Incorporated in 1838, Brooklyn, New York's Greenwood Cemetery is the final resting place of almost 600,000 people. Designated a National Historic Landmark in 2006, Greenwood contains stunning natural beauty and landscape design, unique architectural styles, and a museum that displays artwork, maps, and other interesting objects that belong to some of the people interred at Greenwood. Today, the cemetery offers a variety of tours, concerts, and other programs that provide a cultural and historical experience for its visitors. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with Greenwood's historian, Jeff Richman, author of Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, New York's Buried Treasure. Jeff will share fascinating stories about some of the cemetery's most interesting permanent residents and will also explain why a visit to Greenwood is important not only to pay respect to the dead, but to enjoy Greenwood's peaceful, park-like setting and become immersed in its rich history. I'd now like to welcome Jeff Richmond to our show. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you, James. I'm happy to be here. Well, I've been looking forward to this interview because uh, not only are we speaking about a fascinating topic, and that is Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, but I'm also speaking to a very interesting person. So you are the historian of that cemetery, and we're really glad to have you on this show. Oh, well, thank you. I want to start by asking you, Jeff, where were you born and uh, where did you grow up? I was born in Brooklyn, uh, spent the first three years of my life on East 17th Street in Brooklyn, and then grew up in Great Neck on Long Island and sort of rotated around the New York metropolitan area in terms of schools, uh, SUNY Stony Brook and NYU Law School. So you know this area really, really well. Jeff, when did you first start to develop an interest for history? Oh, that really goes uh, way back. And so it actually probably goes back to uh, when I was in law school and was tipped off on Time and Again by Jack Finney, which is a remarkable book of time travel back into 19th century New York. And I was fascinated by that. I then uh, started to take some courses up in Cooperstown and spent my lunch hour running around, gobbling down a sandwich, and then looking through Harper's Weekly to see what I could find. You just walked into the library and took Harper's Weekly off the shelf. And so that was the great chronicle of 19th century New York in terms of an illustrated newspaper and got even more interested. And then I've also been a collector for as long as I can remember. And so I was collecting uh, tour guides of New York City from the 19th century, books about New York City, uh, stereo views of New York City, those side-by-side 3D photographs through a lensed viewer. Uh, lantern slides, and all sorts of stuff pertaining to New York City. So 
when you were younger before law school, did you have any interest in history in school or anything like that? Yes. Uh, you know, in high school, in college, I started off as an engineering major in college and decided when I hit physics that engineering was not for me. <laughs> Game over. And so uh, it was either going to be history or political science, became political science. Uh, but I was always interested in history and particularly 19th century New York City history. Now, these stereoscopic views, I've seen these where you you actually lay the two cards next to each other in a viewer and you, it looks like it's 3D. It sort of pops out at you. Do you think those cards sort of drew you towards 19th century or was there something else about the 19th century that got you really interested? Well, that was kind of a subset of what I was interested in, but that really made it come alive wow. to be able to see the omnibuses on Broadway going up and down to see the events, the visit of the Prince of Wales in 1860 and the Japanese delegation and Civil War regiments parading down Broadway. And to see that really the way the Victorians saw it in the 19th century as these events were happening. And so to be able to do that, and that's really what led me to ultimately Greenwood Cemetery. When you talk about the 19th century, it's the first century where we have photographic evidence of the past. And that actually has an extra attraction to me because now you look into the faces of people who lived back in those days. It's so cool. So I can see where 19th century can really come alive when you look at those photographs. Yes, uh, absolutely. So really, uh, photography as we know it comes about 1839. Louis de Guerre in Paris is uh, his invention is purchased mm -hmm. by the French government. But the Civil War in particular was an absolute triumph for photography in terms of portraiture of regiments and companies and individuals, and just makes that history so much more accessible because of the photographic aspect of it. And so I absolutely love that. And collecting 19th century New York, like any collector, you go to a uh, show and you don't find anything that you want to add to your collection. And so you start to expand out a little bit. And when I would go to these shows, I would see some place called Greenwood Cemetery in stereo view cards. And so no one was really buying them very much. And so I decided to invest in one in particular. I knew which one is my uh, first. And that was a snow scene at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And I had no idea that that place still existed. So this was uh, back around 1980. In 1987, I saw an advertisement for a tour by a professional photographer. And so I've always been interested in photography, taking photographs, and particularly of cemeteries, uh, which tend to be very photogenic. And this was an opportunity not only for me to take, bring my camera and my lenses and take photographs, but also to see 
my recollection of what these particular views looked like and to stand there and say, I know what this looked like in 1862. Uh, and you know, that urn over there is no longer here, but that sort of thing. So that was my impetus to go for the first time um, to Greenwood and to discover those uh, landscapes and views. And I was absolutely blown away by it uh, to the extent that uh, I got locked in the cemetery <laughs> and had tickets for a Met game that evening and was supposed to pick up my son, who was a young boy at that point, and had to climb through the fence to get out so I could make it uh, to the Mets game. So, uh, And then I came in like two days later to the office at the cemetery and explained to the then superintendent that I really, really needed a pass to allow me, uh, back in those days, the cemetery was somewhat restricted, no longer the case, and also was a little bit uh, reluctant to allow photography, which is also no longer the case. And so I got a pass that said photos allowed, and I was often running from there. Game on, right? That is a great story. Uh, I wanted to talk to two things that you said. One is the the fact that you were interested in looking at the then and now. So you had these photographs that were going way, way back. And then you were actually looking at where it was now, that same area. I love looking at before and after pictures with big gaps of time in between. And you look for little clues as to why it is that same view and what is still there and what is completely gone. And I can see where that would have a big attraction. The other thing I wanted to, just for our listeners, I want to ex express my thoughts. And I think you, you probably look at it exactly the same way as I do. I have always loved going to cemeteries, not because I'm a ghoul, you know, I'm looking for ghosts or anything like that. To me, as a lover of history, cemeteries represent many, many stories of people's lives and times gone by. And I look at the cemetery as an educational, historical place, and also a place where you pay respects and remember many of the lives and people who lived before us. So do you think along those lines too, Jeff? Yes, absolutely. And so to your then and now point, I'm fascinated by that also. So I have all of those books that show Manhattan in the 1850s and then Manhattan today. And by and large, those then and now photographs, there's nothing in the today photograph that was in the 1850 photograph. But what I find to be fascinating of the then and now aspect of a place like Greenwood Cemetery is that when you compare them 160 years apart, you can see the exact same monument there. And so when we go out on the grounds and we're looking for where was this photograph taken, we can stand exactly in the spot where the photographer stood or had his tripod with his camera on it and know that we're right there and everything matches up. In terms of your question about stories, I have led a number of trolley tours at Greenwood. Mm -hmm. And so we acquired a trolley about 15 years ago. 
the cemetery is a pretty big place. It's about a mile across by a mile across, almost 500 acres. And so it's impossible to do a walk across it from end to end within a two hour period allocated for a tour. But the trolley allows us to do that and to get across that ground. And so we can do all these remarkable theme tours. And one of the theme tours I did, particularly when Hamilton was all the rage, the Hamilton, the musical, was Hamilton tours. And so we have a, uh, his uh, son who was supposed to write the biography and didn't quite get, get it done in time. And his mother died in the interim and many members of the family and one of the seconds in the duel involving Hamilton. And I conclude that tour playing the music, the song that goes, who will tell your story? And so my answer to that question is the historian and the tour guides at Greenwood Cemetery, that we have almost 600,000 people interred there, and each of them has a story. And while it's impossible in a lifetime or 10 lifetimes to tell all those stories, we can certainly tell many of them. And so that's what we're trying to do. And I think it is largely about the stories of the people who are there and you know how remarkable those stories are. So that's what we try to share with our visitors. Yeah, you know, my wife Kelly and I, we visited you at Greenwood Cemetery last month, and it was a wonderful experience. It was fascinating. While we were driving home that day, Kelly turned to me and she said, you know, Greenwood Cemetery is not a place of death. It's a place of living history. It's a place of living stories. And of course, there's a lot more. There's culture, there's landscaping, there's nature, you know, things like that. Architecture, so much involved, which we'll talk about in a second. But I want to back up. Now you've, back in the, in, in the early days, you've now you're able to climb over the fence and get to your baseball game. But uh, you have your uh, permit to take pictures and you're able to get into the cemetery. Now, when did you ratchet up your involvement with the cemetery to the point where you were, I believe you were a volunteer first, correct? Well, I was actually, this was before we had a historic fund. So the historic fund dates from 1999. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by about the early 90s, I became interested in sharing these stories that I was discovering. Mm -hmm. And so I started just on my own doing tours of the cemetery and researching. So at the time, I was still a lawyer representing uh, criminal indigents on appeal so I had some research skills and some writing skills. And as I researched, I discovered more and more that there were incorrect stories going around from other tour guides, shall we say. And so I wanted to kind of straighten that out, started to work on a book about Greenwood. And by 1997, the cemetery uh, expressed interest in publishing the book. And uh, it was published in 1998. By 2000, I was going to the cemetery uh, pretty much one day a week to uh, work there part time. 
And so there was no historic fund staff at that point. It was just me and the cemetery president. And by 2007, I decided I had, after 33 years, I had had enough of the law and the frustrations attendant to that. And that I wanted kind of semi-retirement to do maybe 25 hours a week as the cemetery historian. So the first Greenwood Cemetery historian was a fellow by the name of Nehemiah Cleveland. Cleveland died in 1885. And so there was a bit of a gap. Just a little bit. (laughs) Between us. And so uh, I became the second Greenwood Cemetery historian. Then it became, well, you know, if you want health insurance, you've got to work 30 hours a week. So I said, okay, I could do that. And then it became, well, if you'd like to work 40 hours a week, you could do that also. And we'll pay you for the over hours. And so I started to do that. So it became quite a bit. But uh, as you can imagine, I do love doing this work and the voyage and the discoveries and all of that. Well, when Kelly and I spent that uh, two, three hours with you that day and your enthusiasm and your passion for history and the stories that are there within the grounds of Greenwood Cemetery were contagious. And uh, we left there talking about all the different things that uh, we learned from you. And it was just outstanding. Now, I actually have some ancestors buried in Greenwood. And uh, so I do have an attachment to the cemetery and my wife is originally from Brooklyn. So there's an attachment there as well. But now that we're talking about Greenwood Cemetery and your transition in careers to Greenwood, can you tell us how did Greenwood Cemetery get started? What were the earliest days of Greenwood like? Well, Greenwood is part of a movement that really started in Paris, France. And so in the beginning of the 19th century, they were burying people in pits, basically 500 people in a pit, no opportunity for visitation, no opportunity for memorials, gravestones. And then uh, an entire section of one of these pits collapsed into an apartment house that adjoined this burial ground. And so the Parisians quickly concluded that this was not the best way to go about doing this. And that maybe what they should be doing is creating a space outside of the urban center, but close enough that in a day trip, you could visit and come back home. And so they created Père Lachaise in Paris. And then the English got involved and they said, oh, well, let's make the roads a little bit windier. And let's add some ponds and maybe some more trees and make it like an arboretum. And then the Americans got involved. So by 1831, the first of the rural cemeteries in America is uh, Mount Auburn, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is servicing the urban Boston. 1836, Laurel Hill is servicing Philadelphia. And then March of 1838 is Mount Hope, Rochester, New York. And then Greenwood is April 18th of 1838, chartered by New York State. And I know it's April 18th because that happens to be my birthday also. And so this place is established in Brooklyn, 
across the East River from the population center of New York City, but close enough that you could take the ferries across and visit for the day and have this wonderful opportunity in a time when there were essentially no public parks. And so there was kind of the tiny city hall park, but the city elders considered, let's sell this off. We don't really need this. And so if you wanted a day of leisure where you could enjoy nature, you came to Greenwood. Less than two decades after the cemeteries established in 1838, by the 1850s, half a million people are coming to Greenwood every year, which is a remarkable number, particularly considering the smaller population back then. People are coming from all over the world. Charles Dickens visits from England. The King of Hawaii comes to New York City and needs to go to Greenwood Cemetery. And it in fact becomes the argument for let's build a central park because look at Greenwood and look how they are attracting people to get out of the urban center and to enjoy the sky and the trees and the plants. And so that's in the 1850s and that argument wins out, but Greenwood still is the place for New Yorkers in that period to be interred. That is so cool. You know, I, I think about the cities, I would imagine in the early 19th century, there's a lot of disease, uh, there's overcrowding, you've got, you know, burials, so there's barely any room to put the bodies anymore within the city limits. And now you've got a place where you can, the bodies are removed, they're put somewhere else, but they're in an environment that's, that's beautiful, it's peaceful, and it's a place to go outside of the crowded cities. And then, as you said, you got people now going out as families and visiting, and, and it actually inspired Central Park. That is terrific. That is so cool. Right. And so in addition to the very good point that you make about hygiene, they are getting this sense. They're drinking before the Croton water in the 1840s. They're drinking from wells. Mm. And people who are living near churchyards in Manhattan are getting sick. And they're not quite sure why, but they know that that's the case. They have this theory of miasma, that there's kind of a cloud that hangs over there. So they're feeling that they start to push the line where you can bury bodies farther and farther north in Manhattan. And at the same time, there's an element of permanence. The churches, there were many, many churches on Wall Street, for instance. But as that land becomes more and more valuable, and more and more commercial, people are moving away and the congregants no longer wanna come down to Wall Street on a Sunday for services. And so the churches are now pursuing their congregants who are living, let's say in Union Square and they're selling off their land and they're putting up notices that say, you have 30 days to claim your bodies and get them out of here. And so there's this element of you're laying mother and father down, but there's no permanence to the arrangement. Right. And so George Templeton Strong, the great diarist of 19th century New York, visits Greenwood. And he says, 
what a remarkable place. The idea that you could lie down here with earlier generations and future generations will lie down here with you. And this will be your really final, final resting place. And so that was revolutionary also. Jeff, do you know, or is it on record, who was the first burial at Greenwood? Yes, we do. The cemetery fortunately has these wonderful chronological books. So 1838 to 1840, the cemetery is really setting the place up. They're raking rock rubble that the glacier had left off the hills. They're laying out roads, they're laying out paths. And by November of 1840, the first burials occur. Mm -hmm. And it's the Hanna family. So there are five members of the Hanna family. Some of those burials, I believe it's three, are removals. So they're taking the remains out of churchyards, likely in Manhattan, right. and bringing them over to join two recent deaths in that same family. And so the virtue of these books, they go from 1840 to 1937, mm -hmm. every burial in order over 400,000. And we have gotten grants, uh, federal grants to digitize that and to make it fully searchable. And so that has been a huge project, but it's gonna be a wonderful source for researchers and academics and people who are just looking for information about their ancestors. That's great. We went to Greenwood uh, several years ago and we walked in and, you know, people were very helpful and we sat down and we actually were able to search and find where my ancestors were buried. And I was actually surprised because at least two of the people who were buried in Greenwood, my family, they died in Newark or Bloomfield, New Jersey. So they, it was quite a, quite a distance back then to be, you know, back in the 1850s up through the 1880s to transport these people. But it seems that they did. It was a popular place to bring people. Right, absolutely. So the cemetery really had a national, even international reputation soon after it was established. And particularly, you know, the same concerns today that it's too expensive to live in New York City. Let's go to New Jersey and find a place there existed very much in the 19th century. And so we have people, you know, many people from Connecticut and Westchester County and Hoboken and all of these uh, surrounding areas. Let's talk about architecture. When we, are, we drove up in our car to the, the main gate, we were met with this absolutely beautiful old structure that looked like something out of a Gothic period. It was just outstanding. Can you tell us about that building and what's the backstory? Sure. So that is one of actually four New York City landmarks that are associated with the cemetery. That was the first one that was landmarked uh, several decades ago. And so Robert A.M. Stern, who is a practicing architect and a great uh, lover of architectural history of New York, has described that as the finest example of high Victorian architecture in America. Mm. 
and it runs up 106 feet to its top. And it is the idea of architecture as kind of Christian theology pointing towards heaven and the idea of resurrection and there are reliefs sandstone reliefs on there by the sculptor english trained sculptor john moffat i am the resurrection weep not and the whole idea so the cemetery is established as a christian non-sectarian right. cemetery initially now is totally ecumenical every group uh, that exists in new york i'm sure has a representative at Greenwood, but these brownstone gates are just a spectacular entrance to the cemetery dating from the Civil War period, 1861 to 63. They're built there by Richard Upjohn and son. Richard Upjohn was the first president of the American Institute of Architects. And this was Gothic revival design, which he saved for his best pieces. It is so, uh, I say, overwhelming when you see it. You know, you're not just, many cemeteries, you, you drive through a couple, a couple of little stone pillars and you drive through or, or through an open gate or something like that. And here you've got this magnificent structure and it's, it's like I'm, I'm going into someplace really special and important and interesting because of this entranceway. It's just, it's just incredible. When Kelly and I, took our trip and visited you and we got into your vehicle and we started driving and uh, you made some stops along the way. I was wondering if it's okay just to, if I could mention some of those stops that we made and you could tell us a little brief snippet about the graves that we saw. One of them was that really, really took us was the name of Jim Creighton. And uh, he had a lot to do with baseball. Could you tell us about him? Sure. So Jim Creighton was really the first national baseball stars in the earliest years of baseball. So we're talking 1860, mm -hmm. right in there. Uh, he and his team traveled, kind of barnstormed through the Northeast and they were so impressive that many baseball teams were created locally and called the Creightons. And so Jim Creighton developed this kind of fast pitch. You were pitching underhand at this time, and there was no umpire to call balls and strikes. Mm -hmm. And so Creighton, you know, we have pitch counts today in baseball. If you hit like 90, 100 pitches, you uh, get the rest of the day off. Uh, Creighton would go 275, 300 pitches because he would throw a pitch and the batter would just not swing at it. And he had to keep pitching. But he was dominant as a pitcher to the extent that he actually died when he was only 21 years of age. And so did not have a long career, but we did a rededication of his monument in 2016. And John Thorne, base, Major League Baseball's official historian, was present for the rededication. And he uh, stated that Jim Creighton should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame for the impact that he had 
on the game of baseball. So tremendously impressive, just pitched for a few years, but really revolutionized uh, pitching in baseball. I'm so glad that Jim is getting this recognition so many years later, because you're talking early, early days of the sport. And I think sometimes we we're very involved in what's going on today, but you got to see who, who came before these athletes who sort of forged through the, the early days. And you talk about boxers, they didn't do 15 rounds, uh, three minute rounds. They would do like a hundred rounds until somebody was lying flat on the ground and same with pitching. I, I would imagine his arm was uh, needed a lot of ice packs. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, probably co correct. Yes, I think so. One of the earliest names that came up when we visited you was also an, an athletic person by the nickname of Mile a Minute Murphy. Mm. Can you tell us about him? Sure, sure. So um, Mile a Minute Murphy, we're talking the 1880s. Mm -hmm. uh, bicycles, tremendously popular in this period. And Mile a Minute Murphy decided that he was going to go into training. He would train on a treadmill and he would train on the roads. And he was going to be the first person in history to pedal a bicycle one mile in less than one minute. Mm. So he trained and trained and trained and he got the Long Island Railroad involved. And so one of the virtues of the Long Island Railroad is that it runs across this pancake flat Long Island. And so they laid out this track of one mile between the rails and he was going to pedal and the train was kind of going to pull in front of him and pull along to kind of, you know, he, he would kind of push behind it. Mm -hmm. And there was an aerodynamic aspect of that. And uh, he, you know, at the point started pedaling and pedal, pedal, pedaled. And apparently they had not told him, but they really kind of skimped on the boards that he was supposed to get on. Uh oh. And so as he finished the one mile, the boards were running out. And the surgeon who was on the back of this train with help was able to pull Murphy up before he ran out of boards and would have undoubtedly uh, not ended well for him. Quite an interesting fellow and became very famous. And not only was he famous for this mile a minute, which is on his gravestone, he's Charles Mile a Minute Murphy on his inscription, but also became the first motorcycle policeman in Nassau County on Long Island. A substantial second career. I don't remember you saying that when we were out there. I remember the first part, you, you hid that little tidbit from us, Jeff. <laughs> I, I will have to save some material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Now. For those people who are interested in maybe political history or the history of crime in New York City, they might be interested in a tombstone that we came upon for Boss Tweed. Can you tell us who Boss Tweed was? Right. So Boss Tweed, you know, I'm fascinated uh, news reports to this day when they want an example of civic corruption, still cite Boss Tweed. And so he gets shout outs all the time. 
Uh, he was this political leader of Tammany, the uh, Democratic Party uh, headquarters, and they set about stealing money in big chunks. And so they stole millions and millions of dollars. Uh, there's a Tweed Courthouse right behind City Hall in Manhattan, and that was budgeted at $250,000. And it cost more than $12 million by the time he was done stealing. Ouch. And so, you know, people are like, oh, you know, it's a fairly impressive building. It cost as much as St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it cost as much as the United States Capitol, and it is nowhere near as impressive as those buildings. So they were, you know, a broom was $50, a chair was $175. They laid out enough carpet to get like from here to Boston. <laughs> and so they, they were just stealing in this very methodical way. And then the whole thing fell apart. And what's kind of fascinating is sometimes we tend to think of the people at Greenwood as kind of these isolated stories, isolated individuals. Yeah. But there was a committee of 50 that went after Tweed and his corruption. And many of those people, the prosecutors, the other, you know, the civic minded people yeah. are at Greenwood also. And their campaign was to bring him down and make sure he died in jail, which ultimately is what happened. He died in the Ludlow Street jail. So it all caught up to him. It did. It did. And so one of my uh, most recent favorite stories, I was driving by his lot about two years ago. Mm -hmm. And I, as I drove by, I saw something out of the corner of my eye at the gate to his lot, which is fairly impressive, has bronze bars around oh. it. And so I backed up my car and got out and I looked and there was a little trophy that someone had obviously plastic trophy someone had bought in a trophy store and it said best boss on it. <laughs> so that's, uh, he's there. And then Pete Hamill, who was a very famous journalist was editor of the New York Post and the Daily News and wrote a number of books and was a real Brooklynite who grew up climbing the fence of Greenwood Cemetery where he and his friends played tag at night is buried right behind Boss Tweed. That's where he wanted to be. He thought the conversation with Tweed would be uh, fascinating. Great stories. Now, a lot of people are interested in the Civil War. Do we have a lot of Civil War soldiers buried in Greenwood? We do, we do. And, uh, you know, I was young and foolish a number of years ago in 2002, the uh, New York City Civil War Monument had deteriorated substantially mm -hmm. and had to be uh, restored. And so it was recast, the original zincs were recast as bronzes. And when we did the rededication, we had about 75 reenactors in Civil War reenactors uniforms and I was thanking them for coming out and they were saying what an honor it was to be there and it occurred to me I've long been interested in the Civil War I was for many years a member of a Civil War roundtable it occurred to me that we should really be looking for Civil War veterans that there are undoubtedly many at Greenwood 
one of the reenactors had a list that he had put together over a period of 20 years of 250 Civil War veterans based on just gravestone inscriptions. And so I thought, okay, he has 250, there are probably 500 here. And since 2002, we have found over 5,000 that we have identified and written biographies for each of them and gotten uh, about 2,200 gravestones for Civil War veterans who were in uh, unmarked graves. You know, one of the things that really uh, stood out to Kelly and myself was the research that you have done and continue to do on the people who are buried in that cemetery. And I think we're going to talk about a very important one of those projects that you did with research in a second. But I noticed when we were there, we, we took a picture of a monument to a drummer boy in the Union Army. Could you tell us about him? Sure. So that was Clarence McKenzie, who was 12 years old when the Civil War began. He had uh, drummed for the 13th New York State Militia in 1860 when the Prince of Wales came to visit. When the Civil War begins, Clarence begs his mother to allow him to go at the head of the 13th to the front. And she absolutely says no. And, you know, I can empathize with Clarence. Clarence persisted and tortured his mother until she finally said, okay, Clarence, you can go. Clarence said, mother, who will want to kill a 12-year-old boy? Mm. And so he had the honor of beating the drums as they marched towards a ferry to be taken down to Annapolis, Maryland. Sadly, he and another drummer boy were kind of practicing with muskets and they did not know that the musket borrowed by the other drummer boy was loaded and his fingers came across the trigger. It fired, the bullet ricocheted and then hit Clarence. Oh. And within just a few hours, he was dead. He was shipped back to Brooklyn, the first casualty from Kings County in the Civil War. His dog lay below the casket. He was buried at Greenwood on the Hill of Graves, which is a public lot, single graves that his family uh, owned. And his dog lay there for a week, oh. uh, refusing to leave. There was talk for years and years of getting a suitable monument for him. And finally, his brother, who had served in that same regiment, was able to raise the money that was needed. And they put up this wonderful, wonderful casting monument of Clarence, which really reflects his face and his characteristics there. So it's a wonderful piece. And it's actually been signed in pencil by Mackenzie descendants who still live in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's, it's an outstanding monument. I was able to snap a picture of it. So if you're listening on our YouTube channel, you'll you'll see that photograph. Now, you talked about some restoration, you talked about uh, research, those two things sort of combined together in a place called the Freedom Lots in the cemetery. Very important. Could you uh, tell us about that, Jeff? 
Sure. So the Freedom Lots, uh, we were aware, or I was aware for a number of years, that we had what were then called the colored lots from the 19th century. And these were lots at the uh, now closed 9th Avenue entrance along 37th Street mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. Seven lots that had been sold for a price of a dollar to the Colored Orphan Asylum and to other groups to create this area where a number of burials of people of color are. And so we've been doing some research on that, which included pulling stones out of the ground that had sunk over the years. So we did that about 15 years ago. And then our leader of our restoration program had high school volunteers over the summer about four or five years ago, and they pulled more stones out of the ground. And they suggested that we should really update the terminology. Mm -hmm. And so pursuant to their uh, suggestion, those became the freedom lots. And we've been doing some research. I have a volunteer who's now working on that. And so for Juneteenth, mm -hmm. on June 19th, uh, she's going to re be reporting to our trolley tour visitors on what she's found about individuals there. And another volunteer just counting the number of people. So my guess would have been a number of years ago that there were several hundred people probably in there. Turns out that there are about 1,330 people of color in there, primarily from the 19th century. So it's really quite a group of people. And of course, there are many stories there. And so we do have some great research that our volunteers were able to do on one fellow in particular, John Monroe. Mm -hmm. who uh, was from North Carolina, served as a quartermaster sergeant, and he was a person of color who had been enslaved, but learned somehow to read and write because you couldn't be a quartermaster sergeant and be in charge of obtaining all the materials necessary to fight a war without that. And then he came to Brooklyn, was a deacon of the Bridge Street Church, lived until 1918. Uh, when he was hit by a truck in Brooklyn Heights and died, you know, in a uh, accident. But uh, very detailed information about him. And we were able to identify him because he has a characteristic Department of Veterans Affairs stone that probably dates 100 years ago. Yeah, we took a picture of that as well. When we stood in that Freedom Cemetery, Freedom Lots, uh, it was chilling. It was, uh, we got a sense of deep history there. And as you said, there was about, you said about 1300 perhaps that are buried there. The fact that you're working on projects with people, teams of people who are bringing the stories of those who are interred there alive and to hear the story of the, uh, the African-Americans who are buried in there and, documenting it for future generations. I think that's fantastic. That's again, that's living history in a cemetery, frankly, that's the way I see it. And I think it's to be applauded really. Well, thank you. Yeah. We do want to find out as much of 
the stories of these people and other individuals. And so it's important to understand that Greenwood in those chronological books recording what are called vital or vital statistics recorded many things. So age of the person, where they were born, where they died, what they died from, who their funeral director was, but did not record race. And so the challenge has been to find people pretty much one at a time, with the exception of these freedom lots, where the presumption is that those are all people of color. So we have, in fact, found four or five lots, family lots, elsewhere in the cemetery, which uh, I've had a volunteer go through them. And to the extent that census records exist for people, seem to be people of color because of course race was in fact recorded so it does seem that if you were economically capable of purchasing a more expensive lot mm -hmm. and you were a person of color you could do so at the cemetery you didn't necessarily have to be in those freedom lots see again history is living some people think history is like an old dusty book and it never changes because it's recorded and that's it. But uh, you're, you're uncovering more and more history as you go and uh, bringing out more stories. And I, I, I just think that's great. Just to run through a couple more of the stories that we, that we saw when we were with you. One is a dog named Rex. And I saw there was a bunch of People had laid a bunch of sticks in front of the dog. And I was one of the people who put a stick in front of the dog because everybody else did. <laughs> Could you tell us about Rex? We don't know a great deal about Rex. We do know that there are a number of dog monuments at Greenwood. And it does appear based on research of other canines mm -hmm. that they were interred at the cemetery. So the cemetery, if Rex's owners had buried Rex there by just coming and digging a hole for Rex. We would not have any record of that, but we do have, there's a, it was a Newfie, a Newfoundland dog named Gypsy mm -hmm. and a researcher for the ASPCA when we were doing an exhibition with them found in fact a uh, obituary or a report of Gypsy's funeral. And so we do know that Gypsy was buried at Greenwood Cemetery. And there were controversy in the 19th century about burying dogs. Some of the lot owners objected in the cemetery. Uh, ultimately, in that period, uh, banned uh, such burials. A lot of visitors seem to particularly like to lay little sticks on the grave of, of Rex. Right. Rex has many sticks to retrieve. So that, <laughs> that's a good thing. There's a poem that relates to a dog that may or may not be interred at Greenwood. The dog's name was Fanny. Do you remember that poem? I hope I do. Yes, yes. So uh, this is the lot of the Howe family. And so Elias Howe is credited as the inventor of the sewing machine, uh, had been dirt poor as a uh, young boy, had gone to work when he was about 13 or 14 years old and became a multimillionaire. The family had a dog by the name of Fanny, which research shows was a pug. 
And on Fanny's gravestone is this wonderful Victorian poem. So I think I'll just do the first stanza, if I can recall that. Go for it. Only a dog, do you say, Sir Critic? Only a dog, but as truth I prize, the truest love I have won in living lay in the deeps of her limpid eyes. I could do the second stanza also, if you want. Do it. Let's hear it. Frosts of winter in her heat of summer could make her fail if her footsteps led and memory holds in its treasure casket the name of my darling who lieth dead. Well, it's a little sad, but it's beautiful. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and we have to recall that it's not to a beloved wife or daughter or mother, but to a beloved pug dog. Well, I'm a dog lover, and I can feel the emotion in that poem. Uh, now, there were some that I won't have you go into now because, you know, there's other things I want to ask you, but we saw a monument to a sea captain. We saw a fireman's monument. There was one that was striking. There's this woman sort of draped across a, a tombstone, a big monument, the bronzed woman. What's her story? So her story is, we do get rumors with the workers on the grounds as to what something is. They refer to one thing as the pencil, which is in no way a pencil. And uh, they refer to this as the mob bride. And so their story on the grounds is that she was about to marry into an organized crime family in both senses of family and that she was gunned down on the steps of the church. And that's why you see her draped on these steps on her wedding day, which is an interesting story, but totally untrue. And so uh, an archivist at the cemetery a number of years ago, when the New York Times had just come online and was searchable, searched for this family and discovered that they had an estate, in fact, in New Jersey, that it was a well-off family with a number of servants and that two of the servants got into a fight and one of them went back, the male servant got him his revolver and came out shooting and killed a female servant and one of the daughters of the family that owned the estate. And so this is really a monument to kind of tragic female uh, death it's you know not nice as a story, but it's nice to do the research and discover what the real story is and what the intent of both the sculptor and the family was in putting this uh, female figure out in front of their lot. Right, dispel the myths around it. There's another one that was really the most, I would say, spooky or creepy for, for us. We got out of your vehicle and we walked up to it. And there's this sort of a, it looks like this angel and it's looking down. It's almost hooded and it was very spooky. And then you had asked that if I got down and looked up underneath this hooded person that was on this tombstone that, to see what I could see. And it was actually a face underneath it. And it kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. And you said that this was the Angel of Death Monument. So this is in the Sheeran family lot. Charles Sheeran had served as mayor of Brooklyn. He was a leader of the 
German-American immigrant community. And early in the 20th century, he became ill. And his wife was trying to nurse him back to health. And he was really about to die. And suddenly his wife was no longer there. And it turned out that she had become ill also. So within 24 hours, both of them died. He dying, not knowing that his wife was so ill. And so you can imagine the shock to the family. And so they hired Solon Borglum, the sculptor, who was the brother of Gutzon Borglum, who did Mount Rushmore, to create really a visualization of the angel of death, Azrael. And uh, they came up with this piece that is just remarkable. So very few people know, you know, it looks like this hooded figure, but if you go in, as you say, get down on your hands and knees and look up, the face of death is underneath this hood. Ooh, <laughs> gives me the chills. It was beautifully done, though. It really was magnificent. I really want to ask this one. Uh, Jeff, do you have a favorite story from Greenwood Cemetery, or was it one of the ones we've mentioned already? Or do you have a particular one that you like to tell? I do like, there are a number that I like to tell. I do like the uh, monument to Jane Griffith which is probably as fine a piece of 19th century marble work as you will ever see. It just has a lot going for it. And so the essential story is that Jane is at home. She's depicted on the monument as on the steps of the brownstone that was on 16th Street, just off 6th Avenue in Manhattan. 1857, her husband Charles is about to go off to work. You can see the Sixth Avenue horse car off to the right. He's going to work. And when he comes home, she is dead of a heart attack. Mm. And so he hires a very, very gifted sculptor, Patrizio Piatti, whose signature is just barely... Uh, discernible at the bottom. It took me many years to figure out what that said. And I was able to locate a uh, advertisement for Piatti in a directory of the time. And uh, Piatti said, I'm an Italian trained sculptor. I do marble mantles. I do cemetery monuments. And he did some of the most spectacular monuments at Greenwood Cemetery. Uh, Colonel Vosberg, the sea captain that you mentioned, previously and just very very gifted as an artist and then the next step was i just decided on a hunch to look for piatti at greenwood cemetery and lo and behold he was there it turns out that his son trained with him and became a sculptor in one of his pieces at the near the fort hamilton entrance and the two of them were both in unmarked graves Really? Which is, you know, that story of the cobblers, children who have no shoes. Yeah. And so these were monument makers who had no monuments. So we salvaged stones from the Brooklyn Monument Company. We purchased their land several years ago. 
and we put gravestones out for both of the sculptor Piatti's. Oh, that's wonderful to give them their a marker for their resting places. That's great. Again, you're, you're always researching. And we saw that stone, that monument, and it is beautiful. I hope the photo we took of it does it justice. So when we were driving through and uh, hearing a lot of these stories, we couldn't help but notice how beautiful the grounds were. We saw ponds or, or maybe even call them a lake, but they were ponds, uh, beautiful trees. What is Greenwood's focus as far as maintaining the beauty of the cemetery? And has it always been that way? The cemetery, actually, when New York City hit hard times in the 1970s, the cemetery also hit some hard times then and really closed its gates to the public. That has all been reversed, and the cemetery is really very, very conscientious about maintaining the place, but the emphasis has changed. And so we now have a horticulture staff and they are doing cutting edge experiments and studies in terms of what is going on. So at Greenwood, for well over a century, turf grass was king. And so, you know, you had to mow the lawns, keep mowing the lawns. Yeah. And uh, that has changed in just the last few years. And so an awareness that if you mow the lawn, you're using gasoline and you're putting pollutants into the air. And so there has been a very definite effort to reduce the amount of mowing. There has also been an effort to remove some of that turf and put wildflowers in there, both because you can save on gasoline and save on pollutants, but also at the same time create habitat for insects and wildlife with these beautiful wildflower hills and meadows. And so that is being done and it is a decided shift from what has been done and I think a shift uh, in the right direction. Well, it was outstanding uh, as far as we were concerned. It was so beautiful and peaceful there. It's so wonderful. You got, as you said, like it's cutting edge. So that's fantastic that those efforts are being put into Greenwood so that future generations can enjoy the natural beauty and of course the the stories that literally lie within, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, exactly. So we, we've also, uh, the National Park Service just a year or so ago confirmed uh, the uh, sighting of an insect that no one knew existed. Uh, there are scientific experiments going on in terms of efforts to uh, grow chestnuts in uh, the cemetery, scientific experiments with beech trees and the diseases that are threatening them. So there's a good deal of that kind of cutting edge work. Uh, we recently got a big grant for the drainage system in the cemetery in the hopes of reducing the outflow of water when a storm hits. So a lot of work is going on in that connection. That's great work. The other thing I wanted to mention is that when you took us inside one of your buildings, 
you showed us a lot of museum items and artwork. Just briefly, what is the significance of the items that you have in the museum? We uh, have essentially two collections. One is a collection of paintings and drawings and sculpture by artists who are interred at the cemetery. And so we have a list of 400, 500 artists. And we have been able to collect, you know, not the famous names like Jean-Michel Basquiat, who was at Greenwood, uh, or Asher Durand, but uh, some other artists. And so that's one aspect of the collection. And the other aspect is essentially items that I've collected on behalf of the cemetery. And so all sorts of materials, uh, whether uh, portrait photographs or items themselves, radios from a 20th century designer. And so some wonderful material that really helps tell those stories of these individuals and why their lives, you know, left an impact uh, after they were gone and interred at the cemetery. We were tickled pink by what we saw there. Just absolutely fascinating, and including some newspaper clippings about Mile a Minute Murphy and <laughs> uh, many of the other people who were there. And the beautiful artwork was outstanding. Now, among the projects that you're working on, you've you've got researching. You're you know, you're collecting things that relate to people who are buried there. But you mentioned it earlier in this interview about your book that you put together. It's called Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. It is a fantastic book. It is just filled with beautiful photographs, which I understand you took all the photographs in the book. Uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah, well, it is, it is a great resource for people who may be interested in visiting the cemetery for people who are, who are doing research on different things, just to see the beauty of the cemetery and the people within. And there's, of course, the stories. We've only talked about a handful now, but there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of stories in this book that you can follow. I also understand that you wrote a book. I don't understand it. I know you wrote a book. It's called Building the Brooklyn Bridge. It's not a topic for this interview, but we want to bring you back another time to talk about what you've learned about the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, when it was built and who built it and all the stories around that. Uh, so we are, we are really looking forward to you coming back and talking about that book as well. How would you sum up, Jeff, how would you sum up the importance of Greenwood Cemetery as a national landmark, which I understand it is one of only about was it five cemeteries in this country that are national landmarks? Right. So, uh, yeah, I think it might be up to six or seven at this point, but <laughs> around, uh, yeah, certainly in the ballpark. Yeah. So, uh, I think that we certainly see ourselves at this point as leaders of a vanguard mm -hmm. of cemeteries across America that are trying to deal with the aspect that you know they're full or the burials the income is not all that much there mm -hmm. and what do these places become and so we're trying to set an example of that for other cemeteries across the country and how to 
go about becoming really historic parks and turning to the idea of this place is a bird watcher's paradise. This place is, if you're interested in 19th century architecture, just a remarkable place to go. This place has so many stories to share with you. And so if we do that and continue to expand that and expand programming for movies and art exhibitions and all sorts of performances, I think we set an example for cemeteries across America, which are likely struggling as they try to make that pivot. We made that pivot or started that pivot about 20 something years ago. And the idea was what becomes of the place when you've used up all the land and you don't have graves to sell and you still have some income from funerals but not as much as you used to have and does the place become abandoned or does it become something else does it become a cultural institution does it become you know the wonderful 500 acre oasis in the middle of urban brooklyn that people can visit and appreciate at so many different levels and so that's really what we're trying to do in the future. I think that's great. Jeff, can you give us your website so people can find out more about what's going on at Greenwood? So the website is green and then a hyphen and wood.com. The hyphen is there because 19th century New Yorkers loved hyphens. And so the New York Historical Society still hyphenates New York which is the 19th century spelling, but I did some research and Wall Street used to be hyphenated between wall and street. Really? So that's part of that model. So that's why we have the hyphen in there, but that lists programs by month, by the upcoming week. And so we have many walking tours, trolley tours, uh, art exhibitions, um, you know, the moth on public radio comes to visit and they do their storytelling there. And so that there's a broad, we have artists in residence. We have an exhibition in our catacombs by our first artist in residence. And now we have a second artist in residence who's creating artwork at the cemetery. So it's really become and is well on its way to becoming uh, the cultural institution that is really a credit to Brooklyn and New York City. That's terrific. And uh, also, how can people order your book, Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery? The book is available on the website. And you should get your hands on it ASAP because I'm now working on a revision of it or a volume two of it. And so it's been 25 years since I wrote that book and it's got some wonderful stories in it, but we would like to make a more diverse picture mm -hmm. of number one, the people who have joined us since 1997 and also of people we've discovered being at Greenwood since 1997. So. That will be a second volume that will talk to 
those stories. But uh, the first volume is, uh, you know, priceless. And uh, so people should get their orders in right away on the website. I have a copy of it sitting right here and it is amazing. And also, how about your book, Brooklyn Bridge? I know people will be staying tuned to hear more about what you know about the Brooklyn Bridge, but how can they get a, a copy of that book if they want to read it ahead of time? Yeah, actually, Greenwood's website also has uh, copies of that book. It was just given an award by the Victorian Society as one of the best books of the year. So I'm very excited about that. And of course, a number of the people in the book are buried at the cemetery. <laughs> Always comes back to Greenwood, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, Jeff, how has being the historian of Greenwood Cemetery impact your life? <laughs> well, I think it's kind of allowed me to enjoy history at a very uh, unusual level. It has allowed me to just enjoy walking around the cemetery. It was a beautiful weekend this past weekend. And I spent a few hours Saturday and Sunday just wandering and was able to find an inscription for a guy who served for 51 years at a, as a surgeon in the United States Navy, who I have to research. Uh, I found the name of a sculptor on a bronze full-size sculpture that I have to research. I found a plaque about a second battalion that I have to research. So, and just wandering around, I'll find a gravestone that says this person served in World War I. And so we'll write a biography of that person and put that online. We have a World War II project that we've been working on. So, you know, we will never tell the stories of everyone. Uh, when that first book came out, I did get phone calls from people who said, my grandfather is buried at Greenwood and I don't see him in the index of the book. <laughs> and so I had to explain that these are 250 of the 575,000 people at the cemetery. And we had to be somewhat selective and apologies if your grandfather didn't make it into the book. But, you know, there's an endless array of things to discover. And that's one of the joys of this job that no matter how much I find, no matter how many mysteries I solve, there's always something around the bend that you've never seen before or never discovered before that can uh, you know, lead to the next mystery being solved. Jeff, I'm sorry, but you have the coolest job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's coming. That's a voice of envy speaking right now. <laughs> You're not the first person to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> the coolest job. But seriously, you you add so much for people to enjoy. And Kelly and I were, were two of those people who absolutely, totally enjoyed the visit we had. You are very uh, personable. You, you have these stories at your fingertips. And you're not only concerned with those stories, but also learning more about the people. And I'm waiting to find out where, how about my ancestors? How come they're not in the index, by the <laughs> way, Jeff? <laughs> we, yes, yes. We, we came up with a statistic a few years ago. We launched a program called Greenology, which does research 
dipping into the cemetery archives. And we came up with a number that 20 million people in America can trace their roots back to Greenwood Cemetery and have ancestors who are interred there. So it's a big project. And you know we do what we can within the limitations of seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and kind of go from there, so. Well, thank you for spending this time and just the, the few stories you told uh, really get people interested. I hope uh, our listeners are really fascinated by what they heard, but also hungry to hear more and get your books and also to visit Greenwood. Look on Greenwood's website. Could you repeat the website again, Jeff? Sure, it's green-wood.com. And we do have an informal motto. I don't know if I mentioned this to you and Kelly when you came to visit, okay. but right. I came up with this, come visit while you still can leave. <laughs> and so uh, people oh, I like that. keep that in mind. It is just a spectacular space in the middle of Brooklyn for people to explore on their own or come on a tour, or come for an event. And so um, just a uh, wonderful, wonderful place. It's really a mixture of not only the things we spoke about, the culture, the art, the history, the stories, but it's also a, a place of deep respect as well for the people who are interred there. And we really appreciate that. And we're going to be back because we're going to get on another one of those tours. We're going to get on the, we want to get on that trolley and we want to bring family members along as well. But Jeff, thank you again. And I hope you have a great evening. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Okay. Have a good day. Bye now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.